turning to Hebrews, the 13th chapter this evening, and we'll um, get even closer to finishing this epistle. I'm sure that this month we will reach that goal. And what I'd like to do is to begin reading at the beginning of uh, chapter 13, down to the uh, 17th verse. So beginning our reading at Hebrews 13.1. Hear God's word. Let love of the brethren continue. Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels in the world. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, them that are ill-treated as being themselves also in the body. Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. But be free from the love of money, content with such things as you have, for himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any way forsake thee. So that with good courage we say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What shall man do unto me? Remember then that had the rule over you. Men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. Do not carry away by diverse and strange teaching. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by meats, wherein they that occupied themselves were not profited. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat that serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priests and offerings of sin are burned outside the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let us therefore go forth unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have here an abiding city, but we seek after the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of lips which make confession to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them. For they watch in behalf of your soul, for they that shall give an account, that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. And that's why the reading of God's word. I have on occasion in the past preached on this section of the book of Hebrews, and I have ordinarily entitled of the message, The Sacrifices of the New Covenant. I particularly like to um, use that message when I'm going someplace where people, um, often I'm asked to speak because people want to know what the theonomic point of view is, or what reconstructionism is, or what your view of the Old Testament is. And uh, I think this is a very valuable passage, and I think that title is a provocative one as well, because we need to understand how the New Covenant looks upon this whole question of sacrifice. Now, there are places in the book of Hebrews 
which preceding this one speak even more strongly about the atoning need to sacrifice or the, uh, the sin offering as it's spoken of in the Old Testament. But you know, we've just finished right here in chapter 13 a section that talks about having an altar. We have an altar. It says the Levitical priests can't eat the meat, can't eat from the altar that we have. And this is being said over against those who apparently are advancing some strange and heretical doctrine having to do with diet, pertaining to the eating of meat. And it would seem it's the Levitical practice of eating meat or sharing a meal with the priest during certain of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant that uh, is being propagated as uh, necessary in this Christian uh, era, or at least in the Christian assembly. And so the author here says uh, that in verse 11, the bodies of those pieces of blood is brought to the holy place where the high priest of the offering for sin are burned outside the camp. So they can't eat those things. Their offerings were to be consumed outside the camp. Okay? And this way, now see, he, he picks up almost in a stream of consciousness way on this question of outside the camp. And, I, and you remember how in the last lesson I told you there's a reversal. Outside the camp was unholy ground. Okay? And when the priest went outside the camp, he could not come back in to the camp until he ceremonially cleansed himself. But now Jesus went outside the gate, outside the holy city, and the author says that's the place of sanctification now. That's where we are made holy, outside the city. And there's a lot of literary things going on there that I think are very interesting. But now having said that, he comes back in verse 15, which is the beginning of tonight's lesson, and says, now through him, this one who is sacrificed outside the camp, this one who makes us holy there, through him we offer up sacrifices. The discussion up to this point has been on those sacrifices, which uh, in the Old Covenant were outward offerings, and in some cases, enabled the eating of meat with the priest or, uh, or the priest himself eating meat. So we're coming back to the question of sacrifices, but now in a new way. The book of Hebrews is not spoken of sacrifices like this up to this point. And so the sacrifices of the new covenant. What sacrifices do we offer to God? I think we use that language. Most evangelical, fundamentalist circles, certainly in dispensational circles, if we were to say, what sacrifices do we Christians today offer? They say, none. There are no sacrifices. Jesus is the one forever sacrifice, and there aren't any more. Now, of course, he is our sin offering, and that's for sure. It's something which, uh, if you're going to oversimplify the picture, I'd rather have it oversimplified that way to remember that uh, the bloody sacrificial ritual of the Old Covenant has been put aside, but the offering of sacrifices to God is not. And I'd like to prove that by turning to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Peter 2 at the 5th verse. Peter says, You also, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God Jesus Christ. Peter says, one, you have been formed into a temple, a spiritual house. Two, you are the priesthood in this house. 
You are a holy priesthood, a priesthood set aside and consecrated. And what is it we are to do? What do priests do? They offer up sacrifices. And here Peter says we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are to be acceptable to God. And of course, they're only be acceptable if they're offered through the mediation of Jesus Christ. So now what are the sacrifices which we New Covenant priests offer up in the holy house of God, the spiritual house of God in which we minister? Can you think of any sacrificial language in the New Testament apart from the text? Of, I mean, if you look at Hebrews, you know it's sense of my punchline from the Greek. But uh, where else in the New Testament do we read the sacrifices that are to be offered? It's a well-known passage. Those of you who are Bible memorization programs have probably memorized this. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's turn to that now. Romans 12, the first two verses. I'll try not to spend the whole time here to turn up here, but half of you have a whole sermon to send the word there for. Okay. You, you think I'm kidding? That's a significant therefore. Paul took. Paul took 11 chapters to get to the place where he could say, Therefore, now if you've got the point, here's what I want you to do about it. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy. And look at that language. Acceptable to God which is your spiritual service. And don't be fashioned according to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now what sacrifice are we to offer to God here? Well, the text, come on, somebody's got to have it. Our life? Our bodies. That doesn't fit in well with the spiritual or platonic nature of religion understood by many Christians today, but Paul says, our very bodies are sacrifices to God. And then he contradicts himself. If a sacrifice, if it's a sacrifice, must be killed. Right? You don't lay a lamb on the altar and let it get up and run away. Okay? You cut its throat. You spill its blood. You kill it. Paul says, but you offer your body living sacrifice. You continue to live, but you're living so you're not your own. You live as a sacrifice now. And that sacrifice is the spiritual service that is acceptable to God. And uh, Paul defines that further as being transformed in our lifestyle, doing God's will and not being conformed to the world. So the old covenant sacrifices not only pointed to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which the old covenant sacrifices also typified the giving up of ourselves to God in sacrifice. Yes, Jesus died in our place. But dying in our place took care of our guilt. It was not the offering up of his life so that we could just live like hell now. You understand that? That Jesus died for us to take care of our guilt, but he does not die for us in order that we don't have to live under God anymore. And so we must be sacrificed to God. We must be consumed in God's service, totally transformed, renewed in our minds. And our bodies must be an expression of that too. So there are sacrifices in the New Covenant. And Hebrews talks about two in particular. Hebrews tells us, in fact, at the end of verse 16, 
that these are sacrifices with, uh, with such sacrifices, the author says, God is well pleased. God is well pleased with these sacrifices, and two are mentioned. The first, in verse 15, is verbal praise to God. Verbal praise to God. The second, generous sharing with others. So let's look at the sacrifices of the New Covenant, beginning at verse 15, and I want to emphasize these opening words because the English has through him at the beginning of the sentence, which is a little bit awkward, but the Greek has it at the beginning of the sentence too, there's a reason for that. By putting that expression for the beginning of the sentence, it puts emphasis upon it. We are supposed to read this, it's almost as though if you had a bold, you know, um, printing feature as you're printing this out in the translation, you would want to bold that. It's through him. Get the point? Through him that we can now offer up sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Christ is the only mediator through which we can offer anything to God. Verse 15 of the ninth chapter said, And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And Paul will tell us in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, that there is no other mediator between God and man, but the man Christ Jesus. And so it's through him that we have mediation with God. Well, he's the only one that can make our service and offering acceptable to God, then what are we to make of the priestly ritual in the old covenant order? And this kind of typifies what the author is getting at all through the epistle, is they're useless. They're not just useless, though. The ritual of the Old Covenant is not just useless, it's also displeasing to God. The whole point of God, what, what good would it do to bring a sacrifice that you knew God didn't want? Think about that for a minute. Does anyone ever come, unless there's some kind of mental derangement, does anyone ever come and offer a sacrifice knowing that the sacrifice will displease God? The whole reason you make sacrifices is to please God. And so the author wants to make it clear the only sacrifice acceptable to God is through Jesus. So you fall back into the Old Testament ritual, you fall back away from Christianity, your sacrifices are worthless. In fact, if you'll turn um, chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, the author has some very strong words. I could have chosen any number of passages uh, from chapter 4 on, but I think this is probably the strongest. Verse 29, of how much sore punishment do you think shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden into foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done desperate under the spirit of grace? For we know him that said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And verse 39, that we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. Shrinking back from Christ is to be desperate to the spirit of grace and to trot underfoot the blood of the covenant. And you can know it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So just think of the sacrifices that you bring, if they are not offered through Christ, and if they do not honor the sacrifice of Christ, and you were actually coming into the hands of a very angry God. 
indicates the whole, I mean, it's such a paradox. Sacrifice should appease God, should turn away his wrath, but there are certain sacrifices which are going to provoke the wrath of God. So, the emphasis, through him, let us offer up the sacrifice. Anybody who forgets the sacrifice of Christ and tries to, uh, to be found pleasing to God apart from him is going to be displeased. And the sacrifice that is to be offered is the sacrifice of praise to God. <coughs> and now he says, which is the fruit of lips that make confession to his name. Praise to God. How often do you praise God? When do we praise God? How do we praise God? Do you sing hymns and that praise is God? Do you only sing hymns on Sunday? Yes, some say yes. A few are saying no. How many of you in the shower and have this urge to sing? Some have that personality. Spontaneously choose a hymn to sing or a song. Okay, you're driving to work and you turn on the radio. Do you spend a lot of your Bible that you want to listen to? Or do you ever have desire to sing Amazing Grace or something like that? The author says that we are to offer up sacrifices. And I'm wondering, do we only offer that sacrifice on Sunday? What is your text study? Okay, this one of those tough verses like pray without ceasing. Supposed <laughs> to be regular, apparently ongoing in our lives, that we're always praising God. The praying is not the only way we praise God. It says the fruit of which that make confession to his name. Confessing Christ before men. <coughs> Calling upon his name, praising him. When you tell a Christian friend, and I thank God that he did this for me today. Let's praise him. Thank him. Um, I've got to bear down a little on this because the fruit of lips makes it pretty obvious, I think, that it's not just this internal feeling that we have. Most of us might salve our conscience and say, well, but I, internally I'm thanking God all the time. Probably not, but even if that's so, even if internally you have that attitude of praise toward God, that is a text is asking for, oh, well, it's not denying that you should be there, it's asking for more. It's saying that we should with our lips always be offering sacrifices to God. So tomorrow morning when we get up, say, am I going to sacrifice to God today? First, will I give my body a living sacrifice? Secondly, will my lips continually praise Him today? Continually, at all times, but there's another aspect to the word continually under all circumstances, too. Last week we took a break in the but the Hebrews to talk about unnatural thanksgiving in the sense that uh, it fits right in though to the pattern because if we're to praise God continually, apparently we're supposed to praise Him when things aren't going well for us. We're supposed to do that which the world can't understand and say, thank you, God, I needed that. <clears throat> These problems are for my good. And I know you love me, and you're really just looking for an opportunity to get my attention and show how powerful you are. You're going to work through this problem. And I don't even know how yet. I praise you for that. It's glorious to be able to trust you in a circumstance like this. And so, let's offer praise to God at all times and under all circumstances, continually. This is an interesting aside. I don't know what to make of it, and maybe it's nothing more than just an interesting aside. I, I mean, if it is, uh, interpreted 
significance or theological significance, but in rabbinic literature, it so happens that if you read the rabbis, they taught that the day would come when the Mosaic sacrifices would one day end, all except one sacrifice. And the rabbis insisted that the thank offering would never end. It would always be continual. And the rabbis taught, I don't understand this real well, but they taught that all the set prayers would cease one day too, except one, the prayer of that giving. And so um, the Jewish mindset, if this teaching were at all known during this time, the author may have been picking up on that. And he said, now the one sacrifice, the one prayer that continues all the time is that of that giving of prayers. He uses the expression, the fruit of lips, and I want you to notice that Hosea 14, 2, this is what he's alluding to. Another thesis is to amaze me how the authors of the New Testament knew the Old Testament so well that they could uh, very appropriately take just a snippet of a quotation from a context and uh, bring it together in their teaching. Hosea 14, verse 2. It's even stronger in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Hosea says, Take with you words, and returning to Jehovah, say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and accept that which is good. So will we render, as my translation says, bullets, but it's really, well, depends on how you use the Hebrew text, fruit of our lips. We will render the fruit of our lips. If it is fruit, it's sacrificial fruit. If it's bullets, which I think is probably not the best translation, which is very obviously sacrificial. Now, Hosea had previously, in a well-known earlier passage, said, Hosea 6, verse 6, uh, speaking for God, For I desire goodness and not sacrifice from the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Already in the Old Testament, there was an understanding among the prophets that the outward ritual of sacrifice was not inherently pleasing to God and valuable. And at the end of the book of Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea, what God is calling on his people to offer is the fruit of their lips, the bullets of their lips. He wants our mouth. And saying that God wants to own your mouth so that you're always praising him and offering up the fruit of lips that praise his name. Psalm, the 50th, verse 23, is literary background for both Hosea and the author of Hebrews, by the way. The psalmist had already said, the 50th Psalm, verse 23, Whoso offereth the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me, and to him that ordereth his way aright will I show the salvation of God. What sacrifice is this God? You getting the point? Praise. Verbal acknowledgement of him. What God's looking for is not outward conformity to ritual, but a sincere acknowledgement of his name. Notice that. The fruit of which that make confession to his name. It really is much more than an evening's lesson just in the name of God throughout Scripture. The name of God has power in the Old Testament. The name of God does so. We lift up our hands to the name of God. We praise the name of God. That's the third commandment. That we not what? Uh, 
take his name in vain. Actually, in Hebrew, the word for take, the problem is to lift up. You're not lift up his name in vain. Now, it seems to me that corporately and individually we're all guilty of violating the first commandment. Even if we've been good enough to keep the same things like God down. I'm sorry sometimes that we hear expositions of that commandment because that's what it's all about. It includes that, to be sure. The vain use, the empty use, the light-hearted use, and the disrespectful use of God's name in our verbal communication. But to take up his name, take God's name on it. Now, when we lift up God's name in the worship service, if we are not a people pleasing to him, we have taken his name, we have lifted it up in vain. When we take his name upon us, we call ourselves what? Christian. Right? We take the name of Christ upon us. We're followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. We take his name, but then if we don't follow him, <coughs> we don't do it faithfully, and we've done that vain way. God and Peter says, so it is a sacrifice that God is very pleased with when we make confession to his name. Through the books that make possession of his name. Okay, there's a second kind of sacrifice that is accepted for that. Go ahead, Mark. Before you leave that, my translation has to comment on that word confession. Because you've been using that word Well, I've been using thanks as a synonym for praise. Okay. Um, I wondered about that. Yeah, I, I don't think it'd be wise to do it, but I'd love to run in my office. I, I'm just not sure right now what the Greek word is. Does anyone have a Greek testament? Love our neighbor. 
Do you know what my neighbors are They're really willing to sacrifice for our neighbors. How about people in this room? The sacrifice for people in this room. I hope we get a few hits on that. But how much? And on a good day, I might get 15% people outside my family. <laughs> but a generous sharing of whatever I have, the model we have in the early church is real obvious, isn't it? They sold anything they had that was necessary to take the needs of the Christians in the uh, community. That takes a lot of faith. Then we we take the down to say, look, look out for number one. And then, you know, we kind of cautiously will share with others. But you see, it would be wonderful if we develop this attitude that, you know, what God wants is such sacrifice. If I ever see the need of another person, take care of it. It's within my power to do it, I'll take care of it. Really, church did that. But I would really like to, in light of this um, uh, polemic about sacrifices, to look at an Old Testament passage that I think is probably in the author's mind. Micah, the sixth chapter, verses 7 and 8. Micah 6, 7 and 8. Will Jehovah be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Is it true? I mean, if God has asked for sacrifice, is it true that he would really be happy if you brought thousands of rams and rivers of oil to pour out on his altar? He has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does Jehovah require of thee? Not bullets, not rams, not oil, but to do what? To do justly and to love kindness and to walk humbly with thy God. Kindness, generosity. To communicate with others, to take care of their needs. That's the sacrifice God wants. You see why I think Micah may have been in the background of the author's thinking. He's talking about sacrifices that are not acceptable, sacrifices that are. And Micah's already taught us. God wants, among well, the three things mentioned by Micah, he wants kindness toward others. Our author says, to do good and to communicate. Don't forget those things. Don't forget. Don't neglect probably a better translation. Don't neglect to do good. Why would we neglect to do good? We're all for evil. We don't want to do good. That's obvious. But what if we are basically good people? We're born again people. Why do people with good intentions not do good? Well, two things come to my mind. I'm sure you could fill out the outline, but First reason is apathy. Maybe you get apathetic. Kind of, you know, we're floating along and take things as they come. Uh, it's the rare individual who gets up and says, now what good can I do today? It's kind of like on the lookout for people in need. We don't have a lot of that in us, do we? Now, if something crosses our path, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to stumble over this situation if I don't do good and hopefully do that. But it's apathy that says, look, if I can 
you know, steer a clear course and avoid problems, then I don't have to worry about these things. But he says, don't be neglectful. Go out of your way. Look for what you're doing. The second reason why I think we neglect to do good is not just apathy, but weariness. It's hard to uh, hard to say because not many of us really qualify for having been good all the time. But uh, what little good I do, I sometimes get tired of doing. But you do too. You know, someone say, "I wish I could just not have to be good this day. I do good for other people. I just wish I didn't have to put out for other people. I just wish I just leave me alone for a while." We get weary in well doing, but. The Bible talks about that in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So then, as we have opportunity, let us work that which is good toward all men, and especially toward them that are of the household of faith. Paul says, don't ever get tired of helping people. Don't ever get weary in well-doing. As much as God gives you opportunity, help others. He doesn't restrict that just to your Christian friends. Remember the story Jesus told of the Good Samaritan? The author, uh, John Sanderson, in the book The Fruit of the Spirit, uh, makes an interesting point. He says, with all of the fruit of the Spirit, there's an artificial variety that Satan wants us to get. And why does Satan want us to get the artificial fruit of the Spirit? Well, because you see, if we have the artificial fruit, we think it's a real thing, and we never bother to get the real thing, really. Because we're satisfied with it. Yeah. And so, in his exposition of the fruit of the Spirit, he talks in each case about artificial you know, substitutes for what God really wants in the place of uh, you know, how he really wants joy and peace and kindness and these sorts of things. And with respect to love, he says limited love is the artificial fruit of love. And by limited, he means we feel like we love, but we restrict our love to certain individuals, or certain kinds of individuals, usually where it is. We love our family, we love the people in our church, or, as he wrote this at a time, that was more meaningful, we love white people. We love people of our economic class. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan because the Jews thought of themselves as taking care of one another with the Samaritan. They were a horrible life. But it's the Samaritan who seems to be good because his love is not limited. He finds him out on the road. He doesn't worry about ceremonial defilements. He doesn't worry about the possibility that he's walking into a trap. And he gives of himself. So Paul says, don't be weary of well-doing. Look for opportunities. Don't let your love be limited. Or, the author of Hebrews says that it's a sacrifice acceptable to God if you share what you have. Don't forget to share what you get. That's what Jesus Christ. Okay, one more ethical exhortation. Then we'll stop tonight. Verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit to them for they watch on behalf of your souls as they that shall give an account. That they may do this with joy and not with grief, for that wouldn't be profitable for you. Very simply, verse 17 says, in addition to loving God and praising His name and sharing what you have with others, doing good, sacrificially doing good, he ends this list of exhortations by saying, and obey your elders of the church. 
church is a voluntary society. People are not put into the church against their will. They come voluntarily. But because it's a voluntary society, it's all too easy for people to fail to give the leaders of the church the respect which is their due. The people think, hey, I joined on my own, and if I don't like what they're doing, I'm just going to take off. The author Cooper says, don't do that. Don't have that attitude in you. In fact, we ought to work real hard to, to, uh, to uh, put out the flames of that anarchistic and rebellious independent spirit that we find within it. And it's in all of us. Even in elders, by the way. But, I mean, it's in all of us. This feeling that I don't need this and I don't like what's going on, so oh, I'm taking off. The author says, obey your leaders. And obey them for the sake of their person in the office, I say. They uh, not only respect the good that your elder has done, or the good intention, or his love for you, but you're to respect his office, too. Because he is a leader, because he's been put over the flock, you should respect him. First Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, is a parallel to this. We beseech you, brothers, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them exceeding highly in love for their work's sake. Interesting is to be at peace with one another. I think it's a connection. You learn to submit to your elders and to esteem them highly for the work that they do among you, and the world is peace in their midst. But when there's a rebellious spirit, we see churches torn up. We see people go through all sorts of trials and tribulations that are really unnecessary because they don't have a submissive spirit. Now, church authority does not mean authoritarianism. Uh, recently, I preached at the ordination service of a friend of mine, in fact, a former member of this congregation, and I made that point that one of the things that I think we should look at, and which I try to look at when we have a candidate for the ministry in our presbytery or wherever, is um, how does he take to having authority given to him? Does he relish it? Yes, is. You give somebody authority to pass what I want, you know, ruling to get in this position. Peter says that the, uh, the shepherds, the elders, the pastors are not subordinate over the flock. Right? We don't need people who love to get the shepherd's staff and start feeding them the sheep. Church authority does not mean authoritarianism. But you know, in our day and age, although there is the threat of authoritarianism because of the sin and pride that's within people, in terms of a cultural phenomenon, our day and age thinks any authority is authoritarian. And so we're afraid of any exercise of authority. Um, I don't really mean you should go out and do this, but you know, if you talk to people and measure their responses, You'll find that if, if people knew the kind of church discipline that we practice or attempt to practice in our congregation, uh, they'd probably think we were culture. Something wrong with us over there. And they could they actually communicate people. Yeah, and they rebuke them and they acknowledge and they people from the Lord's Supper and, and the elders call on people and they expect them to give an account. Why they do. They said so. So I'm just scared of that to 
people ought to be scared of it. It ought to be the rule rather than the exception to the rule. And if for no other reason that this verse is in the Bible. Now there are a lot of people running around out there who don't have elders. They don't have church membership. And what I want to know is how do they obey this verse? Now you see, the comeback might be, well, let's see if we don't have any leaders, then we can't disobey this verse. We don't have to obey these others. <laughs> kind of like saying, well, the, the way to make sure none of us steal is to make sure everybody owns everything. Socialism. So stealing is impossible. Or to make sure no one can commit adultery, we'll just say free love for everybody. Everyone's married to everybody. That settles that. Now, the answer is not to give up the institution of marriage or private property or church discipline and membership. Christians who do not have leaders to obey are in living in sin. I know that sounds strong, but it's true. It's just the Bible says you will obey your leaders. And authority does not necessarily mean authoritarianism. The attitude of many people about submission in the church is submission when I agree with kind of let this rattle around in your heads on the way home while you're singing your hymns and so forth. <laughs> the concept of submission when I agree is a contradiction in terms. Because if it's submission when I agree, it's not submission. It just means when I agree, I do it. Now, there is an exception. You are to submit to your elders for the you do sinful things. Okay? If I tell you, look, the, uh, <clears throat> the school is having financial problems. I want everyone to knock off a 7-Eleven or two by Sunday and give the money to the school. Then you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't say, well, my elders said it. Well, obviously, I don't qualify to be an elder if I give you sinful instruction like that. I should be deposed to that office. But those who truly are elders and have, and have the rule over you, you should submit to them. And that means sometimes you don't agree with them. You don't think they're actually pursuing the best method. There's nothing wrong with you talking to them about that. Elders can learn too. They should be a teachable lot. But the fact is, when the decision finally is made, you submit. Not just when you agree. Um, let me just read. I have two sections I wanted to read, but for the sake of time, I'll just read the larger catechism <coughs> on the question of submission. <clears throat> in the exposition of the Ten Commandments under the Fifth Commandment we read this question what is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors this language is not going to be well taken to the head but inferior and superior are being understood in the sense those who are over you in the world under and over the head the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in part word and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places. I love this next part. Bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. Let's ask ourselves, do we really show that kind of attitude toward our elders? 
Do we, well, let me take this phrase that I kind of partially Bearing with their infirmities, covering them in love. What we do for our elders, you know, our elders are not perfect. We have a wonderful congregation. I really love our church. I love our elders. We're not perfect. But you see, when the slightest defect shows up, I get the impression sometimes we have a tendency to what talk about that. Perhaps they should cover that. You're not. For the sake of their personal authority, you don't have to harp on the failings of your elders, but rather indicate what? Their virtues and their graces, and pray for them. You pray for our elders. Well, why should they? Because look at the job God's given them, to watch in behalf of your souls, and they'll give an account. You know, to become an elder, to become a leader in a Christian church, anybody who relishes that probably does not understand what they're getting into. They should probably read this verse, because on the day of judgment, I'm going to answer for my life. I'm going to answer for your lives, too. And the degree to which I have the opportunity to lead you in paths of righteousness, and did To comfort you, and did To give you wise counsel, and fails, because I was foolish. I will give an account, because God has put me as your pastor, and the other pastors and elders, and other officers in that church, have been put in their positions to lead you for your good. They're watching out on behalf of your souls. Be careful that you not read the word soul here just as spirit in a platonic sense. The word is often used just for the whole person. And I think it probably means that we're supposed to watch out for people. Yeah, and that includes their spirits, their spiritual side, but it includes their whole life. The word, uh, the verb, the watch here means to pass sleepless nights, literally. That happens sometimes. Elders have sleepless nights watching out for the sheep. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians 11, 27, uses the same verb for his concern. He goes, my daily concern for the churches. A sleepless night concern for the church of Jesus Christ. The elder shows conscientious and tireless concern for the flock, and he does so view with a view toward eternity. Now, when you have a recalcitrant spirit towards your elders, the author says it's totally without profit. It won't be of any advantage to you. And you know why? You don't like the elders butting into your life. You want to resist. You have to understand that they will... If I come to you and I say, I'm really worried about you wandering in this way, and I want to give you advice. You need to do this or that to please God, uh, to get back on the right track. And you say, I don't want you butting into my life. On the day of judgment, I won't be held accountable because I was a good watchman. And you'll be held doubly accountable because you worked to do that in the first place and God sent you some good advice. And you said, forget it. Because you were so proud. So, as the author says very euphemistically, that wouldn't be profitable for you. You're passive when people are watching out for your souls. Come on. And he says, aim to make the job of your pastors and elders one that is joyful. They can do this in a happy way. It's great when we go to a session meeting and the elders get together and they have nothing but rejoice for the way the sheep are responding. Paul said, because the Philippians responded to him in all things in a faithful way, Philippians told one, he says, you are my joy, my 
John writes in his third epistle, verse 4, that his greatest joy is seeing that God's children are walking in the truth. And so in your attitude towards your elders, instead of looking at them as people who are walking around trying to be good bodies and butting into your life and causing you trouble, try to make that a joyous experience for them, because they really are looking out for you. The author of Hebrews says, not only is that good counsel, you need to do that, because God requires you to obey Father, we ask that you would help us tonight to take these three ethical exhortations to heart. Each and every one of them is enough for us to chew on and to work at because we fall so short of realizing it in our lives. But Lord, we do pray that first you would make us people that verbally praise your name and confess it continually. That you'd be pleased with this kind of sacrifice. Secondly, Father, we ask that you would make us more generous that we would not neglect to do good, that we would look for ways, and that we would not be weary of our doing, that we would help others. And thirdly, Father, we pray you would give us a true heart of submission in obeying our leaders in the church. We ask that you would give us good shepherds, and they would have wisdom to guide us. Lord, that we would have the wisdom and the meekness and gentleness to submit to them when they try to look out for our souls. We ask, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us we live up to the requirements as we've read them in our, in our profession. That we might pray for our elders. That we might cover their infirmities. That we might cheerfully submit to their lawful commands. Lord, we ask that the fruit of all of these things, as we love you above all and our neighbors as ourselves and show good order in the church, will be this. You will be glorified and there will be good order 